You're tuned in to Holy Smokes, Cigars, Solicism, and Conversation. Let my prayer rise in thy sight as incense. I'm your host, Dustin Quick. For episode five, I have a very special guest, Dr. Rachel Fulton Brown. And she joins me today to discuss Mary as Stumbling Block. So before we get into the episode this evening, I just want to do a plug as I do every episode for Havana Palace here on Church Road, Windsor, Ontario. Uh, best cigars, finest service around. Go see Caesar and Eli and they'll hook you up. Just uh, mention that you heard uh, about them from this podcast. All right, so I have with me the illustrious and esteemed Dr. Rachel Fulton Brown, whom I had a discussion with last year on Mary and the Temple. And I'm very privileged to be graced by her presence again about a year later and on the feast of the Queenship of Mary and the Immaculate Heart double feast, no less. And that was not planned, I assure you. That's divine providence all the way. And I'm, I'm very happy and excited to have her on. So, um, Rachel, well, you're going to be... Thank you for having me. Thank you no for having problem. me back. So you're going to be um, new to my listeners. So before we get into the subject, can you just please um, tell me about yourself, introduce yourself, and uh, sort of, if you could, take listeners on a journey of how Mary has influenced your Catholic life, your spirituality, your devotional life, and your just outlook on life as a whole? Well, the quickest way is to show you the books that I've written, <laughs> two of them, and they're not small. Um, and they're both on devotion to Mary in the Middle Ages, and particularly ways in which um, the liturgical use of particular scriptures was used to imagine Mary. So in the first book, um, this one is from Judgment to Passion, which is the book that came out of my dissertation research, but then it's also my, my first book, um, talking about um, how prayer to Mary and how the imagining of Mary as the bride of God developed out of liturgies for her assumption, which is the feast that we had last weekend. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, in particularly in the 12th century, there are a number of commentators in, in the West and in Latin that use the Song of Songs as a way of imagining the dialogue between Christ and Mary. The Song of Songs is a lovely um, poem from the Old Testament, which is a conversation between two lovers and their, the choruses of their maidens. And, and, and it's usually imagined as a chorus of maidens and a chorus of young men. And right. that sort of setting was used as a way of imagining Mary's relationship with Christ. And so my early work was, was on that element. And then my second book, um, which just came out a, a couple of years ago, is on the the use of the Psalms in describing Mary, and this is this comes from the practice of saying the hours of the Virgin, which is the feast days are going to be um, you know sort of once a year, like her on August fifteenth is her Assumption, or um, you know I forgot my dates right, and the Nativity. Her conception and uh, the nativities in September, conception in December, the Annunciation, purification, and so forth. I'm not saying in the right order, but those are you know annual celebrations, and the, the Song of Songs liturgies would be used on those feast days. But over the course of the, the later Middle Ages, people began saying daily offices in her praise, using some of those same texts, but focusing then more on 
um, the psalms that are used in her feasts. But if you're saying those every day, you're going to get a very sort of powerful image of mm-hmm. who Mary is and you know how she is as the mother of the the Creator. And in this book, I talk about that. Um, practice and, and devotion. So my, you know, you asked about my personal devotion. It's I'm a scholar, and so my personal devotion has been very much shaped by my study of these liturgies, my study of these commentaries and text. Um, that I actually grew up not Catholic but Presbyterian, and so I usually tell it that you know Presbyterians are very into scripture and exegesis, and so mm-hmm. that I was brought to the church. I was received three years ago. I brought to the church through my study of scripture and through my study of Mary in scripture, I think is a very appropriate path. Mm. Um, I've, I've gotten into a little bit of trouble, not just a little bit. Um, it's a fair degree of career trouble by suggesting that Mary set me on this path. Um, right. And <laughs> in, in, in that sense, you know, what I say is when I was in college, I was studying New Testament and medieval Christianity and, you know, sort of both his, both the history of Christianity and um, the problem of sort of comparative religion, but I, I didn't put it in those terms for myself. I, I wanted to find the, the, the way to see her clearly, and that journey has taken me through the scholarship to write these books. Okay, wow. Yeah, that's, you know, that's quite um, quite a picture saying that Mary actually led you to the church. I mean, and and right off the bat, I mean, we we title this Mary a stumbling block. So, <laughs> you, you, right, your your average, let's say your average Christian, Protestant Christian, um, hears that, it says, wait, I thought Jesus was supposed to lead you to the church, or. You know, well, there's there's only one true path. So, you know, whichever entry ramp you use is 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 going to be different. But I'd say what what brought me to Mary was the desire for wisdom. Um, And those of you who are familiar with her liturgies for the feast, they use not only the Song of Songs for things like the antiphones, the the chants framing the Psalms, um, but also in the lessons they use chapters from Ecclesiasticus about wisdom. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to say I said a prayer wanting to find wisdom, that was a very direct sort of, you know, link. And and the mystery, sure. of course, in the medieval tradition is that, well, Christ is wisdom because he's Logos um, and Sophia. But Mary, therefore, is the mother of wisdom. And then particularly in the 13th century, which is what I, I concentrate on in, in this book, mm-hmm. um, th- in the 13th century, there were commentators on her her the images of her found in her offices that made that the, the the premise right that she is the mother of wisdom and therefore filled with wisdom and therefore everything that can be said about wisdom as Christ she mirrors right, right. so the the, the 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 it's it's you know it's interesting that from a Protestant perspective she's considered a distraction from Christ mm-hmm. when in the medieval tradition in the pre-modern tradition you can't see everything you see in her is a reflection of Christ, right? She's, as Dante says, the most perfect image of him, right? So, of course, you know, that makes sense. Maybe, you know, you look first at the moon and that helps you see the sun. Right, right. If you're looking at the moon, you're only seeing the sun's light, right? The moon has no light of its well, own. Light. So, yeah. you, right, if you're looking at the moon, you see a reflection of the sun's light. You're looking at Mary, you see a reflection of the sun's light. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's not... Um, the big difficulty that a 
for some reason, the Protestants in the 16th century placed it in. Um, the other is, you know, so pro for Protestants, it's often considered, a, you know, a problem to talk about Mary because so little is said about her in scriptures. Well, right. um, that's nonsense. And, and there's, there's two different ways that I answer that. Um, one is, if she's so insignificant, why is she in scripture at all? Right. Mm -hmm. It's like if, if, if Christ, if Christ doesn't need his mother as part of the story, shouldn't have been mentioned by Luke. Right. Mm -hmm. And and it and, and if you start making some arguments that, well, she's only mentioned by Luke because all biographies have to talk about their moms. No, they don't. Right. That there mm -hmm. there's a very specific um, theological, Christological reason for Luke to to include her in the infancy narratives. Likewise, for Matthew to talk about her and, in, in, um, you know, describing the, the, the recognition of Christ as the king. Right. When mm -hmm. describing that the king, the, the, the Magi coming to see her and, and her child. And in fact, most medieval images of her. I mean, I have my image here where she's standing. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you have a seated throne of wisdom with her with the child in her lap, those actually develop out of. Um, images of the visitation of the three magi, right? Because she's holding him and presenting him to the kings, and here he is, the 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 the, the you know the, the king that they're honoring. She's the throne of of wisdom, right? She's the, yeah. she's wisdom, the throne of wisdom. Um, and you know, likewise in John, she is the one that stimulates his his ministry by at the marriage of Cana, which is a marriage, which is very important. Um, right. You know urging him to to the first miracle and she's the last witness right with john standing under the cross so to claim that she's you know irrelevant or incidental is is one making nonsense of why the evangelist would include her at all right um yeah. and then and then the, the the further problem is they're not really thinking of why christ is jesus is recognized as as god right that that the, the thing that the new testament does most persistently is prove that Jesus fulfills the scriptures, right? right. What does mm -hmm. that mean? Jesus fulfills what was prophesied of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, the Messiah in the Old Testament, right? So yep. you're going to be reading the Old Testament for for indications that um, Jesus was who the Gospels and, and Paul and, and the other letters say he was. Well, in the ancient and medieval tradition, they're also reading this, the, the the Old Testament for indications that Mary is who the New Testament says she was, which is mother of the Lord. And that's why you end up reading things like Ecclesiasticus is about her, right? It's a book of the Old Testament. It's a book in the Septuagint that shows wisdom being with the Lord from the beginning and therefore, you know, the source of Yes. All, all of this knowledge. So, you, you, if you, it's like again, she's reflecting Christ, right? You, you, you don't have her in the New Testament unless she matters as a character in the first place, and you don't have Christ, Jesus, you know, recognized as the Christ by way of pointing to the Old Testament prophecies, unless the Old Testament prophecies can point to the fullness of how he came into the world in the first place, which is why. Wisdom is part of the story, so it's you know that I, I I when I say Mary you know showed me you know that I needed to write this stuff. What I'm in what I'm trying to say is that isn't it interesting that the way that I came that I come to being able to see Mary more clearly 
in the medieval devotion is by way of taking the scriptures seriously, which is a very Protestant move, right? It's saying, I need to understand why she's there yeah. in, in the scriptures. And and the the final the final um, sort of I'm glad I have my references. The the final proof that the proof that I would use is um, if you're a good Calvinist, right? Mm-hmm. This is this is on page 116 of Mary in the Art of Prayer. If you want to like follow up me on my references, um, you have Calvin insisting that. Um, the word of God, the, the great angel of God, is present throughout the Old Testament, and that's Jesus, right? right. So he says, um, he said, this is still me, the word of God manifested himself to Abraham and the patriarchs in the form of an angel, right? And the, mm -hmm. the, the great angel argument is, is you're, you're my, we're both mutual fans of Margaret Barker's work, right? Yeah. <laughs> her, great, her great angel work is, is to show that the Old Testament has indications of the sun throughout, right? right? Particularly in the form of this angel. Well, interestingly, that's what John Calvin said, right? So mm -hmm. pro good straight down the road Presbyterian argument. Quote, for though he were not clothed with flesh, yet he descended as in an intermediate form that he might have more familiar access to the faithful, end quote. Um, and then I go on to explain, this is the angel Jacob wrestled, after which he declared, I have seen God face to face in Genesis um, this likewise is the angel whom Paul said led the people in the wilderness. Um, quote, still clearer and stronger, Calvin insisted, is the passage of Malachi, in which a promise is made that the messenger who was then expected would come to his own temple. The temple certainly was dedicated to Almighty God only, and yet the prophet claims it for Christ. Hence it follows, Calvin concluded, that he is the God who was always worshipped by the Jews. Mm -hmm. That's exactly the same kind of argument that Catholics and you know medieval and Orthodox Christians used to say these are also intimations of the mystery of the Mother of God, the Mother, the Mother of the Lord. So you know, Protestants don't really have a, a way out unless they don't accept the Old Testament, which was already declared a heresy. In yeah, antiquity, Marcion. Right? Marcion, right? So it's 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 a problem that the the you know the the medieval devotion to Mary is heavily scriptural. You just can't say she's not there. Unless you say, you know, you have to make a lot of other moves. You know, if, if you're going to say Mary is not in the Old Testament, you're going to have to start explaining to me why Christ is, is there. Yeah, because... Because I mean, otherwise it doesn't work. Like, you know, I, I don't want to veer too much off of... It's relevant, so might as well bring it up. But, yeah. you know, I was I was thinking, because there there's a... You know, just as there's a, a Lord in the Old Testament who is Christ, there's there's a mother in the New Testament, but there's also a mother in the Old, right? Right. So, and then you have to ask yourself, well, number one, who is this mother in the Old Testament? And what was her purpose? And if you, if you have like a, you know, a, a proper frame of reference in which to place this stuff, you'll find that in the, um, in the temple, the mother of the Lord is the one who gave birth to the royal son, and he was worshipped as the Lord with his people and was even given the name Emmanuel. So this was the role of the lady or the mother of the Lord in the Old Testament. So when you understand that, it's only natural to see a fulfillment 
in the New Testament, and if you don't, then there's a serious disjunct and a problem. Right, and and the disjunct, as I say, is is Christological, right? That that the 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 premise that um, well, for example, Christians sing the Psalms. Why do we mm-hmm. sing the Psalms? Oh, because they reference the Lord. Who's the Lord, right? And yeah. the I mean that that is what I I, I found in in writing Mary in the Art of Prayer that I, you know, I got to the place where I could, you know, show that medieval Christians have all these names for Mary, mm-hmm. um, these great cascading catalogs of creatures, right? She's, she, the, I'm using the moon image, right? That she's the moon and to the, to the, the sun. Um, but there's also other images that they use for her, that she's the mountain, she's the river, she's a temple, she's a throne of the ark. And mm-hmm. if you, if you read them as, I mean, not many scholars, not many modern scholars have known what to do with them other than say, you know, it's it's just clerical, you know, sort of puzzle making or trying to like overly impress the laity with their bamboozling <laughs> extra yeah. readings. And, and, and I mean, but the problem is that the laity seem to love these these titles. Right. So yeah. they, they don't they don't seem to have been bamboozled. They, they, they thought it was magnificent that, you know, yeah. to name Mary takes basically naming all the creatures. A creation. Now you could say, you know, that's like they're just reading scriptures kind of randomly and pulling out every, you know, reference right. they could. But but yeah. they're references that they find that don't make sense, right? She's the cloud. She's the mm. the. Um, if you're just going for sort of feminine imagery, right? Sure, sure. But and this is the argument I make in, in Mary in the Art of Prayer. If you actually look at the the Psalms that they use, and they're very consistent from the ninth century, which is the oldest liturgical books that we have. Right. Giving the psalms, psalms for any of the Western feasts, right? The oldest liturgical books we have are some antiphoners from the Carolingian mm. period. The, the psalms for the Marian feast are completely consistent uh, for Matins, right? And what I what I do in Marian the Art of Prayer is to sort of read you through those and then the ones that are used for the other hours in her feast with the, ref, you know, the references showing, oh, in fact, those great catalogs of names make total sense when you see that they're the, they are the way in which the mystery of God's indwelling in Mary is explained, but it's with all these Old Testament images, just like mm-hmm. John Calvin is showing you that Christ as the great angel is already present in all of these episodes in, in the Old Testament. And what Margaret Barker is, has done in her work is show how... how um, consistent a repertoire of images this is right it's 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 not random and it's not mm-hmm. you know sort of it, it it's it's too consistent too early right. to be something that is arbitrarily invented as a way to like um save mary from it's not really clear what right it, it, it's sort of so it's a consistent tradition of scriptural exegesis that mm-hmm. I trace through the liturgy and and Barker traces out through the Old Testament and we sort of meet in the 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 early centuries of Christianity showing that this temple imagery is there in the ways in which the earliest Christians were talking about Mary. Yeah, and that's fascinating and and that's why I love your book because not only do we have the common thread with Barker and our love of Barker. Um, but I love how you use that as a framework to understand Mary. And then you draw a thread from that time until the medieval era and to show the continuity. 
Mm -hmm. And why I think that's so important is because it is often assumed that, well, you could say if someone's generous, they could say by the Middle Ages, Christianity lost its quote-unquote Jewish roots, but then people, there's some others who say, well, it happened much earlier, right? But you're, <laughs> but you're, you're showing how, how the, I mean, because the first, the first temple in Jerusalem is the most ancient you can get, and you show how that theology, right down to the titles for Mary, are maintained such that maybe not all the medieval authors and devotees were consciously aware of, oh, this is temple theology, this is temple imagery, but it was so innate, it was so second nature for them to express their love and view of the Virgin in this way. It, it just shows that temple theology is truly ingrained in the DNA of Catholicism, whether one is talking about the second century or the 13th or, you know, pick any century. Well, that I'd say that is the thing that's gotten me into most scholarly trouble because people unfortunately misunderstand my argument, and and they they have I they're published reviews out there by people whom I consider quite quite um, with some of the best in our field, but I still seem not to have been able to make it clear that they think I'm saying that the 13th century authors knew that right that they knew that it was it was the ancient temple. No, they they say that it is. Right. In the sense that they read all of these images of Mary as if they are about Mary. I mean, I have a it's just to give your your listeners yeah. an example. Yeah, um, please. Say Birgit of Sweden. We'll have to look that up. Um, no, Sorry. I, I should know how 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 to how to use my own index, right? <laughs> <laughs> All good. Um, yeah. yeah, this is on 456, okay. and it's it's Virgita is um, she's famous from in the in the 14th century for her visions, right? And that she had um, visions in, in particular, like um, going on pilgrimage to Jerusalem and visiting the different sites where um, Mary and and Jesus lived and and suffered and, and so forth and so she is and she has conversations with Mary and, and things so you think of her as someone who is very interested in the historical sort of reality right that 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 late medieval devotion that we know that was highly um I'd say imagistic in, in the sense of really imagining the relationship of Christ and Mary in their earthly lives and things like the meditations on the life of Christ where the um reader is is actively invited to imagine herself at the crucifixion with Mary watching Christ suffer and so forth. Right. And Birgitta is, is famous for sort of having had visions that are on that scale. She's also um, responsible for a, a trope in the representation of the nativity where Mary is kneeling before the, the child and the child has a, he's like a sunburst around <laughs> he's on the ground mm -hmm. and she's that that is a representation of what Birgitta saw in her vision right so you'd think that she was very kind of concrete and biographical but this is this is what she how the way in which she addressed Mary okay. um, bless blessed are you Mary mother of God you are Solomon's temple <laughs> there you, go. you are Solomon's temple whose walls were of gold whose roof shine shone brightly whose floor was paved with precious gems whose whole array was shining, whose whole interior was fragrant and delightful to behold. 
in every way you are like the temple of Solomon, where the true Solomon walked and sat, and where he placed the ark of glory and the bright lamp. You, blessed virgin, are the temple of that Solomon who made peace between God and man, who reconciled sinners, who gave life to the dead, and freed the poor from their oppressor. Your body and soul became the temple of the Godhead. They were a roof for God's love, beneath which the Son of God lived with you in joy after having proceeded from the Father. The floor of the temple was your life, arrayed in the careful practice of the virtues. No privilege was lacking to you, but everything you had was stable, humble, devout, and perfect. The walls of the temple were foursquare, for you were not troubled by any shame. You were not proud about any of your privileges. No impatience disturbed you. You aimed at nothing but the glory and love of God. The paintings of your temple were the constant inspirations of the Holy Spirit that raised your soul so high that there is no virtue in any other creature that is not more fully and perfectly in you. God walked in this temple when he poured his sweet presence into your limbs. He rested in you when the divine and human natures became joined. So that's Birgitta. And that that, that kind of temple, I mean, it's like, say, okay, look, they're talking in the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries about Mary as temple. This does not mean that they have our historical sense of there was Solomon's temple and then there's this sort of astonishing continuity of imagery from Solomon's temple to their time. It's like they, what they said was we have the tradition, right? Yes. And and then yes. that's what, that's what I challenge my, my scholarly um, colleagues to deal with. It's like, okay, so I'm here in the 13th century. Now I can show you that they use this imagery in the 12th century. Okay. So now I can show you that they use this imagery in the 11th century. Okay. Yeah, so now I can show not. you that they use this imagery in the 10th century. Particularly, I can show you that they're, you know, choosing texts for the liturgies that they're writing in the 9th and 10th centuries and, you know, definitely drawing on, okay, so it's there in the 9th century. So then I can show you that the in the 8th and 9th century in the West, wow. they are getting translations of Orthodox homilies that use this same imagery. So those are from mm -hmm. Constantinople or Crete. They're in Greek and they're using all of this imagery. Okay, so we can take it back to, say, the 7th century. And then they'll mm -hmm. say... Right, the oldest liturgies that we have from the East, um, some of the very oldest ones are from Jerusalem and Constantinople, and then we have homilies that were um, delivered in Constantinople back to the 5th century, Proclus, when he's mm -hmm. giving his homilies that excite the, you know, end up exciting the Council of Ephesus, where she's declared Theotokos. So we can say, ah, well, they're very consistent in their use of scriptural mm -hmm. references to the 5th century. Oh well, do we have anything older? And then you know, it's like it gets it gets complicated. You say, well, what do you count as Marian devotion? And Stephen Shoemaker mm -hmm. has a book that one is very good for showing a lot of showing. He's done extremely detailed textual work on the earliest text that we have about Marian devotion. But he's saying, oh well, but there's not really devotion in the way we would think of devotion until maybe the third century. But it's there in the third century. But he in his own work shows texts earlier than that that use this temple imagery right and we get it's like and you keep just keep going back and then you say why is she in the new testament right yeah it goes and, all the and, way back yeah it goes all the way back and then i and then you know barker came to the point of saying well why do the new testament authors talk about jesus in the way that they do for example in the letter to the hebrews as the priest in the temple right why is that temple imagery so prominent in revelation particularly the, ark, the the heavens open, the ark is there, and there's the lady. Hmm, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. and, and and you know, it's 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 a huge problem, I think, for us as scholars because the scholarship has preferred to make breaks 
in all of these places, right? They're saying, well, right. there's a there's a total difference between the Old Testament and the Deuterocanonical stuff, right? It's like mm -hmm. the Hellenistic tradition can't possibly have the same thing to do with that older stuff. And then Christianity comes along, and that's a total rupture and a break. And then, yeah. oh, well, the Council of Ephesus, and that's total rupture and break. And then, well, you know, and, and they're always trying to put places where you can't go back before. And I find that a very interesting move, right? It's like mm -hmm. you, th those authors keep saying they're working with the tradition and, the, and, and we can show that there is a continuity of use. Why are we assuming that there is, they weren't right in their own sense of these were the ancient, the, 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 the it's like not, the, they don't know the mess in the way that we would. Right. And, and there's a, there's a huge difficulty of framing it as a historian, which way do you go with, accepting the testimony of ancient authors saying that they one just accepting the, the testimony of ancient authors using the imagery right are you are you going to be able to see it in the first place that this is in fact temple imagery and then what do you do with it do you assume they invent it over and over and over again <laughs> or do you you think maybe there is a continuity and a you know a, a, a sense of reverence for the language and and then you have to rethink the whole history of christianity it's very dangerous <laughs> yeah it's it's very dangerous you know like when you when you were reading that that passage about her being the temple of solomon i just I, I felt like going into an ecstasy like i just you know my my spirit soared it just made me appreciate in that moment how special and exalted is the most holy, all holy mother of God. And, uh, you know, her, her virtues, her intercession, her protection is so powerful and I'm so grateful for it. And, um, I'm confident that, you know, her, her mediation with Christ has, uh, brought us together to help maybe unpack some things that could, if it even touches one mind, one soul, then it's a good day. You know, so I'm really grateful for that. But um, I, I was I was oh, but, sorry, go ahead. but but um, you know, not everybody will accept. Not not only will not everybody accept my my reading there, but you're you're talking about how special she was and how blessed she was to be the mother of God. Of course, there is a, a strong tradition of particularly modern scholarship that says she was nothing of the sort. Well, let's talk about that because before <laughs> <laughs> see see what I did there before. It's very well done. Good segue. See? And I, I, that, that wasn't planned, it just kind of happened. Um, so yeah, before we went on live, you were showing me some uh, excerpts from a book that you were reviewing. So uh, speaking I, of, yeah, speaking of Mary as stumbling block, you, you, you sort of went to the extreme end to show me, um, you know, who, you, you showed me like an anti-Mary and, and, and the view that some right. scholars have of, of Mary as like an anti-Mary. Um, and then it turns into an anti-Christ kind of trope as an extension. So, so tell me about that. What, what are some of the more extreme negative views in the scholarship and academia about Blessed Virgin? So when, when I'm describing her as the temple and the, and the holy place and, you know, that, that God, I mean, specially makes her, right, as, as his mother, um, and, and I was contrasting it with the way Birgitta was interested in, you know, the, the intimacy with the historical events, right? So she goes on pilgrimage and wants to see Mary and Christ as, as a, well, um, that, it, that, that desire to, 
to get inside of the way in which Mary and Christ, Mary and Jesus, I say Christ because he is Christ, right? But if we do it just as the historical, right? The person, yeah. Jesus, of, Jesus of Nazareth. But in modernity, since the 19th century, there's been a, you know, a desire to imagine him as uh, a normal person, right? Just a yeah. human being. And um, to say, well, a normal, hu- normal human beings don't imagine themselves as God um, and right. don't, um, you know, go around the countryside declaring themselves one with the father and um, don't end up, in effect, goading the political authorities of their day to stick them on a cross. That's mm. his argument. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and this is I was actually invited to review this book and then the review was rejected because I was honest about my sense of, in fact, the the methodological problems with this kind of argument. But I was accused of not being able to get around my own faith because my, I, I didn't accept this this version. So we'll go with the not the strong negative. Right. Yeah. Now, the the the, the author, this Daniel Rencourt Laferrier, says in his his preface introduction, he grew up Catholic, but has since lost his faith. And so he's writing from what he considers an atheist realist position. Um, He actually did write a book before this one on Jesus, which I haven't read, but the Jesus argument fits in here too. The Jesus, far from being who the Gospels want to say he was, if you read the Gospels, and Curla Ferrier suggests properly as historical records, which is what I had like huge problems with. He claims that somehow you know, you can get into the real experience of Jesus by way of these these um, records without worrying about whether or not they're mediated by the fact that they're written by other people, not like recorded verbatim from Jesus's mouth, which yeah. is another another kind of problem. Um, but that he comes up with the argument that Jesus was, in fact, a grandiose narcissistic masochist who, um, as I said, goaded the authorities into fulfilling his death wish by crucifying him. Um, and that, you know, in, in all of that, it, it also in, involves um, his having a death wish against his own mother, um, whom he hated because she... <laughs> no, it's, well, what, 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 what's interesting... I, I, I do have some excerpts here. What, what's interesting about this, you know, he hated her, he hated her argument was the author, Rancur Laferri, also gets mad at Jesus every so often, not having the human decency to, you know, consider her own, fe- her feelings sometimes, right? It's, it, it, there's, there's a... <laughs> I'm sorry. Prob- I'm actually- no, it's, it's, I, the problem is that what I try, I wrote two versions of my review, both of which were considered unsuitable. Um, in the first one, I said, what he was actually doing by sympathizing with Mary was what everybody had been doing all along in the Christian tradition of saying how much it must have hurt her to see Jesus suffer in the way that he did. And so, you know, even in his own, that's why I say, even in his desire to show as an atheist that all of this is nonsense. Um, and, you know, in fact, Jesus never rose from the dead and he and Mary are both dead and they're dead and they're dead. And he says that several times at the end of the book too, right? It's, um, he, he concludes here with, uh, the, the last chapter is on, on Mary at the hour of our death, right? So forget mm-hmm. the intercession. Mm-hmm. Um, saying, you know, that there are all these prayers to her is a good death. The contrast between what Mary did not do in the presence of her dying son and what she might do for others who are dying is here explored. 
right? Um, that she should have done something for him, get rescued him or something. At one end of the range of options is this extreme credulity where believers, for example, St. Alphonsus de Liguri, the Blessed Daniel Brotier, are absolutely certain that Mary will intervene on their behalf in the final moments. But she didn't with Jesus, right? So phooey on that. <laughs> at, the other, at the other end is atheist realism, where it is recognized that all humans die and remain dead, including Mary the goddess and her son, Jesus the God. Notes, right? And, and so, it, you know, his, it's, the, the sensation I had reading this was there's this movie, and I don't remember the title of it, and I watched it once when I was, interestingly, making altar breads before I was Catholic. It was, I, you know, one of my ministries for the Episcopal Church I was a member of was making the altar breads. Okay. I know, it's funny. So I've got this, unfortunately, this, this movie whose name I can't recall stuck in my head because I was making altar breads while I was making it. And the premise was that it was um, the main character is a schizophrenic who, while he's on his meds, you know, has this sort of happy fantasy life. Uh, unfortunately, involves killing this woman that he tried going out on a date with, chopping her head off, sticking it in the fridge, chopping the rest of her up into bits. And in, when he's on his, when he's, no, when he's not on his meds, sorry, when he's not on his meds, the, the head will talk to him. Okay. <laughs> But when he is on his meds, of course, his pets don't talk to him anymore either. And he, you know, is in this horrible, filthy apartment with blood all over the place. And, of course, he's cut up this woman and made little packages of her. And it's all gross and disgusting. And, oh and right. And I think in the end, he stops taking his meds. So they end up all happily in heaven. I stopped kind of watching it. Right. But the, the, the sort of the problem of faith versus reality in this is like, which is the reality is. Are you the schizophrenic off your meds or on your meds <laughs> when you're able to see Mary as the temple, right? Or would you prefer, in fact, to see her? This is, um, so Jesus speaks to Mary from the cross. Um, it's only in John's gospel that a member of Jesus' real non-metaphorical family shows up at the crucifixion. That member is Mary, of course, but there's no indication that she is at Golgotha with Jesus because she is his disciple against whom he had death wishes because he said they had to take up the cross. Nor is there any record of her taking later taking up a cross in, in order to become worthy of her son. Mary simply remains silent as she stands in the vicinity of the cross with the two other Marys and the so-called beloved disciple. In this gospel account, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is an observer, not a participant in her son's passion, contrary to the various theological, dramatic, artistic, literary, and liturgical representations of the passion that later were invented and continue to be invented in our own time. Although Mary had spoken to Jesus earlier in the same gospel in an attempt to intervene at the wedding in Cana, here at the foot of the cross, she is speechless, and her dying son does the talking. He says, woman, here is your son thereby entrusting his biological mother to the care of the beloved disciple, who in turn is addressed with the words, here's your mother. Now, so what people, um, Christians like Brigitte of Sweden would say, okay, so we have this scene in John of Mary standing at the foot of the cross. What must have gone through Mary's mind as she was watching her son die? And in the, in the, the, the medieval tradition particularly, you have great laments, right? Mary speaks volumes <laughs> of, yeah. Her, her distress at having to see Jesus die. And what Roncur Ferrier does is say, well, she said nothing. It's like, well, no, strictly speaking, John records her saying nothing. And, and you see that as a historian, I was distressed by this because he's taking the proof that John has her say nothing as proof she said nothing, right? Rather than recognizing that John is depicting her in those terms 
and we have to wonder why he did that, right? It's like, well, what, yeah. what, what's the what's the significance of him describing her that way? But that the the sort of which is invented and which is real is is this constant problem in thinking about Jesus and Mary as historical figures, and yet recognize that in Christianity, the reason you care about them as historical figures is that Christianity claims they were right. And so our our I've also been reading. You're going to get all my reading right now. Um, Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. Okay, yeah. Um, I was just watching the movie. I, it came across my YouTube's as a as a trailer, and I'm like, oh, this sounds. This, it's actually a good book. But the you know his version of things was find all the historical evidence for Jesus and test it, right? And find out. Oh, in fact, the Gospels are great historical sources, and the you know the ancient witnesses corroborate things. I haven't gotten to the resurrection proof yet, but that that he found in his work as an investigative reporter that there's all this good historical evidence, which I agree, mm-hmm. but recognize that Christianity needs that in, in the sense that Christianity invents the need for that. Christianity claims that it's all historically real, and um, you sort of, I don't know whether you're, I don't know whether you're, you're I, I don't think there's a logical fallacy here, but I do recognize there's a framing necessity. If you care about proving that Jesus was a real historical figure, you're already in the Christian frame, is is my point, right? Yeah. And so Ron Curleferrier is trying to say, okay, I'm going to figure out what Jesus was actually like historically. Um, and this is what he says. Um um, from the from the cross, a dying Jesus seems to be playing the role of a dutiful son with the last request that his mother now be cared for by family members. When he turns to Mary, however, he gives no indication that he is speaking to a member of his immediate family, let alone his mother, for he addresses her coldly as woman, as he had done earlier in Cana as well. In addition, the man Mary is being turned over to is not even a member of the immediate family, but someone special in Jesus's metaphorical family. What Jesus really does then, and notice the desire to get inside the historical truth here, right? Mm-hmm. So we're going to imagine ourselves, and this is the book is called Imagining Mary, right? We're going right. to imagine ourselves into this scene. What Jesus really does then is push his mother into the clutches of that religiously constructed metaphorical family that Mary had never much cared for. Because <laughs> she like shows up every so often saying, son, what are you up to? And in the other gospels. Um, spoken by her own son, this performative utterance from the cross is a harsh, harsh reproach to her as real mother. She already understands that she is losing her real son and that the substitute son, the beloved disciple he is foisting on her, is no son of hers. Might she also understand something else then, something terribly important, which also has to do with the replacement of someone real by a substitute? I am referring to the matter of the real biological, natural, earthly father of Jesus. This, of course, is another issue that turns on belief. For traditionalist believers, the only father of Jesus is the father, that is, God the Father in heaven. For non-believers, on the other hand, the real father of Jesus, whoever he was, had to be the biological father. If Jesus truly was a human being, he has to have had a biological father as well as a biological mother. If Joseph was not the biological father, an idea that many Christian theologians accept and countless believers take for granted, then some other human male was the father a theologically incorrect idea and a slur on Mary's reputation. Um, and he, he goes on to say the reason she never said anything is because she knew all very well all of this and that she'd raised him into this horrible situation of social fatherlessness. And so he resented her his whole life. And that's why he ended up a grandiose narcissistic masochist, de- desperately trying to find a father because she had, well, what? 
right? As the mother of Jesus, she knew better than they did about how Jesus came into the world and what she knew was mundane. She had had sexual intercourse with a man and had become pregnant in the usual way. After giving birth to Jesus, she fell silent, never revealing in canonical scripture who the father of her son was. I mean, it's like the slipperiness there. It's like, oh, right. So she never spoke in canonical scripture. It's like, these aren't like tape recordings, right? right. And and so he's, he's, he's refusing in his desire to prove this historical reality that she wasn't the, the mother of God to treat the gospels as if they are court records. And she said absolutely everything that she would have ever said in those court. I don't know. It's, it, it's bad history. And it's, 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 um, you know, the psychology behind it is similar to the feminist argument that wants to show that Mary's bad for women because she's revered <laughs> and special a different queen, right? Immaculate yeah. conceived. How dare, how dare she, right? This, this is like the opposite extreme, which is, um, at, so she never revealed who the father of her son was, who indeed was the real father, Joseph, a lover, a rapist, not a proper son of Abraham. Many scenarios have been imagined. All of them dump Jesus into a situation of social fatherlessness. Um, so, and that, um, so that when he said, hanging on the cross in the last of the Gospels, Jesus has one last opportunity to confront his mother over the issue of his illegitimate origin. When he tells her, woman, here is your son, he really seems to be saying, you gave me a pretend father, I will give you a pretend son. Seems like <laughs> <it>. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, but that's <laughs> like Jerry Springer. Like. <laughs> So the, the sad thing about this is this this is considered to be news, you know. It's yeah, like he he, yeah. he he sets up he sets up the book saying um, this is a book that is about it's it's it will appeal to anyone who has ever wondered for about example about the flimsy scriptural basis of many beliefs about Mary, or the tendency of many Mariologists to pick Mary as an incestuous bride of Christ, <laughs> me for example, because that's what my that's what the Song of Songs stuff is about, right? The, yeah. the bridal relationship between Christ. And Mary, um, but that the the sort of premise that it's news to say Mary was a whore. I'm sorry, that's the Talmud. So, <laughs> and and medieval Christians are perfectly well aware of this. I talk about that in my in um, from Judgment to Passion. How particularly in the 12th century, medieval Christians are very interested in scriptural exegesis that keeps coming into our theme, right? And right. They talk, they talk to rabbis, particularly in Paris, Rouen. They're, one of my authors for Marrying the Art of Prayer is in Rouen. It seems to have very good, close knowledge of, of um, Jewish Jewish thinking. He references how Mary loves everyone, Jews, Christians, and Saracens equally, but in a, a, in a different way, right? But she loves them all. Um, so 12th and 13th century Christians become well aware of the ways in which the, the Jewish scholars dismiss Mary as that menstruating whore who, you know, and, 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 and so the, you know, the challenge of the incarnation is to say, okay, did, did God do that? Right. Did God make himself a beautiful temple, Mary, and become incarnate through her. And like, there's some real literal throughness there, right? Like through her vagina. Like through, yeah. You don't get more literal. <laughs> through, right? Yeah. It's like, right. Blood, everything through. Are you going to be, are you going to recognize that as God's, you know, humbling himself into the world and taking on flesh and taking on all of this, this, this um, humiliation? Or are you, 
um, going to deny that he was God, right? And 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 Mary's the stumbling block, right? You don't get to have the incarnation without that question. Yeah, I mean, and and some of the uh, some of the arguments that that author was positing. It's interesting because he's an, he described himself as an atheist realist, right? Right. But some of those some of those lines of argumentation I see picked up by faithful Protestants. Namely, what jumped out at me was the quote unquote disrespect of his mother, and and he nailed it when he said, "Woman," right? But for those of us who know the context, he was. When he called her woman, he was speaking to a, an entirely different reality. Maybe you can unpack that for a minute. Well, I mean, the way usually I default to what the medieval conversation is. But when she's Moulier, right? She's woman. He's saying she's he's speaking to her as as you could say the second Eve, right? It's like she is woman, and now mother of all the faithful. Um, that I don't I don't necessarily it's it's. I do have this moment of with the marriage of Cana imagery that she's there sort of nudging him on. And he's like, you know, woman, what are you doing? And so, yeah. the, 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 you know, the tone of delivery could be everything in terms of what kind of relationship you're imagining between him and her. That they grew, he, they lived together for 30 years before he goes on his mission. Right. So imagining that she's estranged from him or doesn't know who he, they don't know who each other is. That's that's nonsense. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, if, if what you want is the sort of imagining their the affection that he has for the relationship that he has for her, what what Rancourt Laferriere has to come up with in some ways is God is a masochist, a, a sadist. Right. Because if he yeah. really sent the angel to her and told her all these pretty stories about how Jesus would be, um, you know, the son of the most high. She was in for a big, you know, rude awakening. But of course, in 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 Luke, she gets both, right? That on the one hand, she gets the angel saying, you know, God has chosen you, and and in the theological tradition, understood that as Mary. He's asking for Mary's consent so that she has to say yes, right? Fiat mihi. Um, but but when she takes Jesus to the temple to be circumcised, Simeon tells her, right? And this it, 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 this is a fascinating line right that a sword shall pierce through your own heart also soul also so anima I, it's the feast of her immaculate heart today's right so i had that image yeah, of her, her heart being pierced right you're you're well, through your own soul also so that the hearts of many will be revealed and i say yeah. mary is this she's persistently that test the hearts open whether or not you're able to see her as the mother of god or not Right. And if you can't see her as the mother of God, you end up with Rancourt Laferriere's argument that she basically was a liar. But he also makes God a liar if you take his reading of Luke. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of in my original, my first draft of that, that that review said clearly he's suffering with some he's struggling with his own story and projecting it onto them. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is is typical of some problems that people have I, I don't know what it is right but he, he he interjects himself into the story enough to say okay there's something you're struggling with from your growing up that you didn't like these images of Mary with her heart the like the seven sorrows yeah and you felt sorry for her maybe or something yeah. right yeah. yeah it's funny you uh, you mentioned that it, what he was doing was bad history and you 
kind of compared his, well, in his mind, the ideal presentation would have been her attestation of things as a sort of recorded uh, court dictation or something like that. And mm -hmm. like or therapist I, couch or something. Yeah, like right. I don't, yeah. I, I, I'm just a lowly MA, like I don't have a PhD in history, but even I know that if you're looking at ancient history and ancient documents, I mean, you're not going to assume the way that ancients recorded and documented history is the same way that 21st century moderns do with the same considerations, the same assumptions, and so on. Like, that's just a methodological error. Right, although I, I will say, I, Lee Strobel it does a nice job of the people that he's interviewed and, and talked through in terms of what kind of evidence we have from the Gospels and, and the, the sort of whether or not we have things that Jesus actually said, which we do. Um, but the you're saying, oh, there's something you said there about what kind of evidence we're reading. Oh, that, you know, what what I find interesting, what the most interesting thing I found about Lon Curleferrier's book is he's, he's called it Imagining Mary, and that's what he wanted to do, right? He, he wanted to do what everyone in the tradition has done for 2,000 years, which is wanting to know more about the, the, the you know, the relationship that Mary had with Jesus, and that, but that what I would say is that very desire is a Christian impulse, right? Mm -hmm. That we don't have that kind of storytelling about you know the pagan deities. You just don't, right? right? You're just, right. you're not going to care about getting into the interior of Zeus, <laughs> right? Yeah. And 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 so that desire to get into the interior of of their relationship is a very Christian impulse in the first place. Sure. And it makes sense because um, our faith is incarnational, right? right? So if, if, if the divine nature enters into creation and with, the, with the express purpose of raising that creation back up to divinity, we're going it, to, it's important that Jesus and Mary and others are historical figures right. you know, who lived through historical events and had, and had affections, had emotions, had experiences, and we want to get... get not only we don't just want to know them for the sake of knowing them, but ultimately we want to identify with them because they identify with us. Right, exactly. So it, it's like you're, you're, the very desire to imagine Mary accurately, historically, is itself part of the, 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 the great tradition that we're trying to understand. And so, I mean, but what I think modern Christians, generically, I mean, Obviously, differences across the different um, sub-traditions. Um, what, what we've tended to not do as well in modernity is imagine the divinity, right? To understand, yeah. and that is, of course, what the temple imagery is all about. Saying so you're you're um, describing the way the lady is the, the the mother of the Lord in the temple, and that you know in my Marian work, I'm showing things like Birgitta's passage, right? Just saying Mary Solomon, the true Solomon, prepares her to be the place where he becomes incarnate. And th there is this, this um, you know, you have like that movie that I had, that's sort of schizophrenia, right? You're having to see both the, the horrible, gross, physical, fleshly disgustingness of being incarnate and this, you know, heavenly reality that he is God and somehow he is present in her 
body as in as as the you know the Lord became present in Solomon's temple, and being able to keep this the you know the divinity and the humanity both equally part of your meditation that that's always been the you know it's the it's the paradox that we are drawn to in contemplation and and when you're reading the scriptures that 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 is the tension always between heaven and earth that god and the incarnate yeah and 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 that's just the thing right and, and this is how heresy has has propped up through the centuries is emphasizing one over the other uh, either mm -hmm. in either in scale tipping the scale too far or neglecting one side to the other but we're supposed to stay in the middle and that's that's the that's the great mystery and it and it and it's as much as a mystery with Christ as it is his mother yes well it's been <laughs> about an hour already um, that's good. I think that's enough for people to chew on, don't you? <laughs> I do, and I also think it's a great opportunity for me to put out there that we're planning to do, hopefully within the coming weeks, uh, while this is still fresh, uh, part two. We talked about Mary's stumbling block and, and some of these uh, issues related to the historical Mary. We, we talked about the, the temple imagery a bit, and uh, just to remind listeners, Rachel and I did a, uh, a talk, a Skype talk last year. If you go on, it's your YouTube channel, right? Fencing, Fencing Bear at Prayer. Um, mm -hmm. It's simply called Mary in the Temple, and we kind of dive into, um, you know, the lady in the in the Old Testament in the first temple and how, you know, this is fulfilled in, in Mary and the church and so on. But since... I haven't done this yet for my podcast, and I will be having Margaret Barker on sometime probably in the fall. I wanted to sort of set the stage for that and sort of go over those temple themes a bit more, temple theology, how it's related to not only Mary, but again, if you're talking about Mary, you're talking about Christ. And if you're talking about Christ, right. you're talking about Mary. There's no separating the two. Um, and that's, that's so important to emphasize. So when you hear, you know, for example, Eastern Christians say, uh, most holy Theotokos, save us. We're not talking about Mary as some sort of, you know, independent goddess who works in contradistinction with the will of God, but she is the primary secondary means by which the world is drawn back to Christ because through her, Christ was born, God became manifest to the world, which is precisely what the lady did for the Lord and the Old Covenant. So um, I think we'll leave it there and uh, we'll give the listeners some things to uh, reflect on. So before I go, uh, just again, I just want to thank you, Rachel, for your gracious presence and time. It really means a lot to me. And uh, we'll, we'll talk again. So I will close uh, with a prayer. And it being the Queenship of Mary, we'll do the Hail Holy Queen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry for banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning or weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy toward us. And after this, our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary, pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Amen. Most holy Theotokos, save us. 
in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.